Hello and welcome to the Allen and Overy podcast. My name is Rose Hall and I head up business development for our technology group. Today I'm joined by Nigel Parker and Mark Ridgway, both of whom are partners with a focus on intellectual property and both are based here in London. Nigel has a transactional practice whereas Mark is an IP litigator. I'm keen to talk to Mark and Nigel about the role that IP plays in digital transformation. Nigel, if I can start with you, in our previous podcast, we've talked about how traditional businesses are being disrupted by innovative businesses built on digital technologies. And we've said that to survive in this environment, industry needs to adapt and embrace new ways of thinking and working. From your perspective as an IP lawyer, what sorts of projects are your clients undertaking in this space? And then maybe we'll come to the sort of IP challenges that they throw up next. I think looking at it at the the in the broadest sense, we see those businesses that look internally for the digital transformation journey, look to their internal resources for how they will be developing new products and services, uh, how they will be uh, possibly changing their their back office infrastructure to become more digitally enabled. And then secondly, we have the businesses that look externally. Of course, they're not mutually exclusive. A business could pursue both strategies, but for a business looking externally, we're we're talking about possibly undertaking acquisitions, M&A, possibly entering into collaborations with smaller or bigger uh, partners, possibly with different capabilities, possibly an incumbent business partnering with a technology company. With the first looking, looking internally, we see lots of different approaches to this, but often we see the business set up as some sort of separate unit, uh, a, a digital business, if you like, that's somehow freed from the usual processes, controls of, of the traditional business. There's a need to create a, often a mindset shift. If a business wants to go digital, they can't just keep doing things the same way. So they very visibly internally and externally want to do things differently. So they might have a different building, they might have a particular brand for the unit, they might staff the unit with lots of people brought in from outside the business to work together with the ones that are already already within it. We've seen a good example of this a few years ago with Aviva, the insurance company. They set up what they called a digital garage in Shoreditch, literally in a garage uh, in, in, in Hoxton. And they set that up back in 2016, and it was responsible for uh, d- developing lots of new products and services, apps, and so on, that would then be taken back into the traditional business. On the M&A side, they're looking externally. We see you know, endless examples of that across different sectors. A really good example, I think, is automotive, where we see lots of the automotive companies buying up smaller technology companies or niche players that bring particular capabilities. So it might be buying a a company that's um, specialized in mapping for them to deploy in their cars and their connected car technology. It might be a company that's uh, specialized in uh, sensors of some sort, uh, telematics and so on to deploy in uh, automated uh, autonomous vehicle technologies and so on. Um, So we see these big incumbent automotive players, rather than use their R&D capabilities on their own to develop some of these technologies, they look externally to buy them them up. We also see, sticking with the same sector, lots of collaborations 
and said maybe collaborations with the same sort of niche startup uh, companies or it might be collaborations with with bigger players we see um, in automotive likes of Volvo and GM partnering with Amazon and we've seen a whole host of automotive manufacturers investing in in the mapping company um, here um, there's another approach um, which is is a sort of platform or consortia based approach we've seen that really recently with uh, the UK broadcasters BBC ITV and others launching the Britbox service where they are uh, launching uh, or have launched rather this uh, digital video subscription service to try and compete with the likes of uh, Netflix and so on working together with their peers uh, in order to achieve part of their digital transformation journey. Thanks, Nigel. So we understand what sort of projects they are, but but thinking both internally and externally to use your categories, um, what are the IP issues that you see? Well, I think with the internal development option, as I said, often what businesses are doing is they are setting up these separate units that operate differently and possibly where they've recruited in new people to the business that aren't possibly as familiar with its established ways of doing things. It's a very deliberate step. But of course, established businesses have processes and policies that, that are there to ensure the protection of their IP rights, to ensure that innovations are captured uh, and protected, to ensure that things are properly maintained uh, and so on. And the danger is that you lose the benefit of those existing processes and that that creates risk. The question is how to bridge that gap, um, to not lose the benefits of having this separate unit that's freed from some of the bureaucracy of the traditional business, uh, but still benefit from some of the protections. And for, for many clients, what we've seen is there's been a focus on training. Training is something that can be done to varying degrees. You know, it can be squeezed into 30 minutes at lunchtime, which is something that's perhaps more compatible with a, you know, a more nimble, agile digital environment. Uh, and the training can be really tailored to the particular business, the particular issues and risks that it faces. If we imagine a, a business that's set up a digital unit that's, that's uh, focusing among other things on software development, thinking about well, where where will the IP risks arise in this business because it's not part of the, the traditional business. It's likely that the developers of software and the digital unit understand copyright, protect software, that they understand that source code you know, is confidential and that that has value to the company. But they may be less familiar with some of the ways that those rights are protected in practice. They may be less familiar with the use of particular tools to make sure that software development's logged and tracked in a in a an environment um, where it's controlled, uh, where authorship is clearly provable uh, and, and, and trackable over time uh, and, and done in an appropriately secure way. Um, they may be less familiar with the importance of having agreements in place with, with collaborators and contractors that might be involved in, in software development. They, they may be less familiar with things like the risks involved in using open source. Uh, and so making them at least alive to those risks, the importance of checking open source terms before including it in, in, in proprietary code um, at least helps to 
identify and then reduce the risk of problems arising later on. Looking at the other side of things, looking externally, I think the key takeaway I'd have from working on those projects is the need to adopt a different mindset. The incumbent will often struggle working with perhaps a big technology company to reconcile its usual approach where it expects to own everything with what its partner is prepared to offer. And so there is a need to get past that and, and be a bit more creative and think about what each party's objectives are and to try and come to a mutually beneficial solution. And that might, for example, involve cross-licensing of IP between the parties across different fields of use. It, it, it's quite possible that they are not competing directly, and so who owns the IP shouldn't be an issue. Uh, and if they can get past that, they can they can license it between them in a way that en enables them both to enjoy and exploit IP to their, their mutual benefit. Mark, maybe we can drill down a bit into Nigel's comment about new ways of approaching research and development. What are good IP strategies and practice in an R&D environment? Sure. I think, un unfortunately, there's, there's no single strategy that works for, for every business. That's that's the reality. There's no silver bullet. Um, and as has always been the case, I think, for any business, what serves you best is to rely on a, a basket of IP rights. The, the question is, how do you get to that basket? How do you identify it? And, and how do you develop it in the in, in the best way? Um, and of course, for any sort of uh, disruptive, uh, innovative, uh, transformative project, whether that's the in-house model or startup model or a collaborative model, you're trying to move quickly, you're trying to do new things. Um, and you won't have the luxury that an established business might have of you know, upwards of 100 IP specialists covering every flavor of IP right to get everything done perfectly. You've got to move quickly. And whoever's doing it, whether that's the, the lead of the business or a generalist lawyer or even an IP lawyer, has got to prioritize, got to take a risk-based approach. And we've seen it in conversations with numerous clients who are going through this. Even if they've got an ex ex experienced IP practitioner, they're now having to do what they've been doing for years, but in a completely different environment, thinking about new issues. So the, the way I would suggest um, tackling that problem, stepping back from the, the coal face of what's going on, you can split it up into a couple of, a couple of topics. I think, first of all, you've got to ask yourself the question, Okay, for this business unit, for what we're doing, what would it take for one of our competitors to replicate this tomorrow, next week? What would they need? What have we got that they need? Um, and the answer to that is usually people, um, information, data, software code, those sorts of things. And you've got to make sure that they, these things you're identifying, it covers both your USP, whatever it is that you're trying to do that you think is giving you your edge, but also the nuts and bolts of how you put that into practice. Um, so once you're clear about that, then then you get to the question of how do I protect that? And that's the, the basket point. Um, but actually, even leaving aside IP rights, actually it's the practical measures that are quite often the best or the, the non-IP measures. And I'm talking about um, the employment contracts or the, the contracts you have with your outside consultants who are coming in and what you do there. Basic NDAs. You know, people could underestimate the value of an NDA, but um, having litigated a few over the years, they can be surprisingly powerful. But even just, you know, accepting and imposing upon people the fact that what you're doing is confidential and isn't to be talked about outside um, the group involved. You can then get on to talk about you know, your brand strategy or your patent strategy. I think we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, the second big picture topic I would have looking at this sort of business 
uh, is to ask, okay, what are the inputs here? What, what are we using? What are we relying on? Because when you talk about risks and look at things from a litigation perspective, um, having seen many of these over the years, it's the it's the downstream problem where your business was successful or it was successful to a point. Um, but you find out down the line that you built it on, on shaky foundations, if you like. You relied on something that you shouldn't have relied on, whether that's open source code that's contaminated you at some point in the past is now firmly integrated in your, your code base, whether it's the data set you started with or whether one of your key employees brought with them from their, um, their previous employer some trade secrets that you didn't even know they had or code that you didn't know that they brought. It happens time and again, um, and it's a, it's a major risk. So being clear about what you're relying on and being sure that it's um, it comes with a clean bill of health is is also pretty important. Then a, th a third topic I'd think about is the, the collaboration. So whenever you've got multiple parties involved, I think that adds a whole layer of complexity on, on top of those two issues I've talked about. In terms of working out what's going in and whose is it, and who will have the right to use it afterwards. Um, what are you going to develop, uh, and, and how will it be useful to each of you, and what are each of you going to be able to do with it afterwards? And those are probably topics that Nigel could talk more about. And that's exactly what we're going to do, actually. Nigel, you talked about collaborations and M&A with smaller tech businesses. What are the particular challenges there from an IP perspective? Well, I think what, what we found we've had to do when we're working on these deals is adopt a little bit of a different approach than usual to due diligence. As you say, the targets of M&A in digitalization projects are often quite young businesses, possibly only a few years old. They've grown quickly. They don't have established policies and processes. They may have individuals uh, in the limited legal roles that do exist within the business who frankly lack experience. They might be fairly young lawyers, uh, or they might just be tasked with such a wide set of responsibilities and be in such a fast-moving environment that, frankly, it's quite difficult to keep up with the resources they have with all of the legal needs of the business. Um, so it may be that it's that there, are, there are known app gaps, known issues where they simply have to make prioritization decisions. So this means that as the, the if you're acting for the big incumbent coming in looking to buy one of these businesses, you have to adopt a different approach to due diligence. Because if you just took the usual approach, you would, first of all, overburden that target business with so many questions, they won't be able to handle them. They won't have the resources to be able to handle them. But also, you'll just turn up a whole load of issues that, that would, could frankly just sort of bog down the deal process. It, it, it's more important than uh, on other deals to really focus in on what's important. These businesses present huge opportunities. So being savvy about the risks, being able to tolerate some of the things that you wouldn't perhaps tolerate in the same way on, on a deal involving acquisition of a more established player um, presents opportunities. I mean, just to give a few examples, when we're acting on these acquisitions of younger businesses, there's, there's just things that we would typically expect to be deficient. That might be, as we've discussed already, perhaps use of a combination of employees and contractors, but without having appropriate terms, conditions in place. And that creates anxiety about whether the company owns all the software uh, or other IP that might have been created in that business. And the business might be using cloud-based utility-type platforms uh, in its development process. The 
GitHub, Dropbox, the sorts of tools that you don't see used necessarily so much in some larger businesses. Uh, and those tools being used without appropriate controls in place to ensure protection of confidential information and trade secrets that might, might sit on those platforms. We'll, we'll often find that domain names and, and possibly other IPs being registered in the names of individuals rather than the names of the company, quite basic stuff. We might find that registered IPs being filed in some markets the business is operating in, but not others, perhaps the means of saving costs. We'll usually find that policies and procedures and training is lacking, that there won't have been extensive uh, training on particular issues. There won't be extensive policies on things like invention, disclosure, and protection of confidential information. So there's a need you know, given given you would expect to find a lot of these things, it doesn't mean you ignore them, but the focus you place on them and the due diligence is different, and perhaps the solutions that you present to those, those issues are different. Because there are limited resources, there's often limited time available, the deal might be relatively low value. You really do need to prioritize and, and have a proportionate approach. It's also really important to prioritize what needs to be done before signing and what can be done after signing or completion of the deal. There's a lot that can be deferred until after signing. You, whereas you might be, it might be quite important to know that contractors have assigned IP into the business before you acquire it if it's a key asset. Other matters such as implementing better processes and procedures can wait until after. And because the incumbent business buying a, a, a younger startup or niche player will have its own established processes and will want to integrate that business likely in some way into its own business. There's no point doubling up those processes. If there's going to be a big integration effort after completion, it might make sense to just deal with things all at the same time. Thanks, Nigel. One thing we've not yet talked about is the way in which emerging technologies may stretch the application of existing IP law. So in preparation for this podcast, I was reading about how notoriously difficult it is for creators to capture the value of their work in a digital environment. And the example often given is working with artificial intelligence. Mark, can you outline the main issues here? Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, it, it is fair to say that, that obtaining patents uh, in this sort of area uh, has its challenges. Um, and that's not a good thing because patents are arguably the, the, the gold standard of, of IP protection. Um, for the right business and the right product, you get a 20-year absolute monopoly on that product globally. So if you want it, if you can get it, then you, you want to do so. Um, against that, I think it, it, anything got to do with technology, um, there have always been challenges, um, and there are a few reasons for that. I think, first of all, is just the, the speed of evolution of, of what people are doing, the, the speed with which products evolve. Um, and you, the reality is that the product can have moved on and the patent is obsolete before it's even granted. So for that reason, query whether patenting is always worthwhile. Linked to that is the fact that patents can be worked around. I mean, they only cover what the granted claim uh, describes. And so if your competitor can do the same thing, but in a sufficiently different way, that it doesn't fall within your claim, then again, your patents not of much use. And then thirdly, the, the well-known challenges uh, that, that patent law doesn't really, doesn't really fit well with these sorts of businesses because of the 
classical exclusions to patentability around software, business methods, mathematical model models. I mean, those are the that's the language from the European legislation, but the same problems arise elsewhere. Um, and so, if what you're doing is running a, a machine learning algorithm across a big data set, and that's your business model, uh, and it's implemented in software, then you're falling right within a, a whole list of exclusions from patentability. So undoubtedly there are problems. Does that mean IP doesn't work for these businesses? No, absolutely not. And I, I mentioned already confidentiality. Um, so that's that's your starting point. If you, if you are working in AI, uh, you've got a, a starting data set, which you got from somewhere you chose for certain certain reasons, and you've, there's the knowledge around that, where you got it and why, and, and then what you did with it to get it ready. What were the algorithms that you ran? How did you set them up? All of that is no different to any research environment where you have a bunch of people who know a lot of stuff about your particular product um, and they and often only they could could replicate it. So protecting that knowledge and learning is the is the key thing. Um, and that, that's no different to any any research business, as I said. The, the challenges, are, the specific challenges of patenting AI, I suspect are, you know, they're often talked about, um, but then to my mind at the moment, more theoretical and real. So the idea that you um, can't obtain a patent because you don't actually know how the answer was arrived at by the, the black box, if you like. I, I would query whether that's really the case. I mean, if you're filing a patent application, you've got the, the requirements of sufficiency. You have to explain what your invention is and enable the skilled person to go away and implement it after your patent's expired. That's the the trade you're making. So you've got to find a way of putting enough in that patent filing to allow them to do that. But just because you've used AI doesn't mean that you can't do that. I mean, if you've used off-the-shelf kit software, then the patent can explain that that's what you've done. So I, I, don't, I don't think the challenges are insurmountable. Doesn't doesn't actually answer the question either of whether it's the right thing to do. And that goes back to my, my earlier thought. And then... Although we're actually doing a separate podcast on data as a business asset because it's such an interesting topic in its own right, I just want to touch on the importance of data and who owns it in the digital world. Mark, do you want to pick this one up? Yeah, sure, Candy. So you mentioned ownership. I think the way I look at this one is um, probably not ownership as such, but it, it, it's, it's possession. It's what you've got and what are your rights uh, as to what you can do with it. So there's a lot of talk, of course, about the importance of data uh, and absolutely it's the starting point for for many businesses and business models these days and to a degree the the usp of any business will be the data it's got and, and, and what it's done with it so um first of all what data do you already have um what data are you going to be buying in uh, and, and what are you able to do with that for your business what restrictions might arise down the line as your business evolves because typically you would license in a data set under a certain set of terms and conditions and you've got to somehow try and future-proof that as to what you might be doing with the data in five or ten years' time, which is inevitably tricky. And I think Nigel will probably have some thoughts about that. Obviously, all the more tricky when it's personal data of any form. And again, Nigel will come to that one. So one of the great advantages of the incumbent is often its access to large pools of data. That's something the digitally savvy startup company perhaps don't have. They haven't got a huge customer base or a huge track record of doing business and lots of established business relationships that give it access to all of these different pools of data. So there's great value in it, clearly. As Mark says, it possession of it 
is the 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 key the key fact here it's it's not really an ownership question you can't own data as such um data sets may be protected by ip rights and and for that reason you are restricted in your ability to just go and copy data from from others it's surprisingly common to see how many businesses use scraping uh, of data in the public domain as a technique as a way of gathering data there is a misconception still sort of unbelievably so that data that's in the public domain is free for use that you can scrape the internet to your heart's desire and then use and reuse that data for, for whatever purpose and that goes back to the, the point i was making at the start about thinking about what your inputs are to your business and what risks they carry with them. Which you're absolutely right when we talk about data possession and being a separate thing from ownership. Ownership is a hard concept with data, as it was is with information in general, because it's not a monolithic right in the same way that a patent might be. You can have the same patent, more or less, granted globally. Data is protected in different ways in different jurisdictions. And we've talked about confidentiality, and that's probably the one that's most common globally but database rights even within the uk there are different flavors of that so you, you can't talk about ownership as such it, possession is definitely the starting point and then often it will be contractual rights and so when you talk about web scraping which is as you say hugely common did anyone stop to look what the terms and conditions of that website were because the data you've taken will be protected by database rights or it may, it may be uh, or copyright for that matter I think there's often a risk-based approach taken by businesses, which perhaps explains its prevalence. It's only certain data sets that are in the public domain where it's worth, frankly, asserting intellectual property rights or contractual rights against third parties that might be taking that data. And often a lot of it happens somewhat below the surface as well. Uh, businesses can use and reuse data that's in the public domain for uh, their own development purposes, but it might not be apparent externally that, that they're doing doing that, that they're deriving insights from that data and, and, and so on. On that, the um, you might think that right now it's below the, below the surface and, and, and no one knows what you're doing, and it's never going to be in the interest of the data owner commercially to take the point. But we do see it. We do see business models even that are focused on sweeping up years of data misuse, IP infringement of one sort or another. Um, and it's quite lucrative to businesses that do that. Companies that have rights in their data, and their information, um, if they think that others have been misusing it for years, that's that's a uh, money to them. They can monetize their rights in that data by going out and, and taking action. And we do see it. So it, it's not a theoretical risk, it's an actual risk. Uh, and the question, I think, to the business that's using that data, as you said, a risk-based approach of thinking, well, okay, what's the worst case here? Worst case is I have to stop using this instantly, because that's what injunction involves, and pay a lot of money. Okay, how much? What's the risk to my business that comes with that? And is it worthwhile? So, Mark, you're talking about almost a, a kind of a data equivalent of an IP troll. I resisted using that term, but yeah, effectively. It's your opportunity to coin that term, Mark. <laughs> you missed it. Um, Mark touched on personal data protection issues, the, the sort of unique risks and challenges that poses. There is widespread recognition now that personal data uh, is a key asset of any business. 
And when you're working with personal data, you're not just subject to contractual restrictions, intellectual property restrictions, but you're also subject to regulation in the form of data protection and privacy regulations. What that ultimately means is that there are, there are limits to what you can do with personal data, limits driven by data protection principles, the principle of transparency. Anything you want to do with personal data must be transparent to the individuals. Anything you want to do with personal data must have a legal basis, must have typically legitimacy, or must be done with the, the consent of the individuals involved. Establishing legitimacy can be difficult because ultimately you need to take into account the reasonable expectations of individuals, what they're comfortable with. And some of the business practices out there take things like you know, some of the, the more uh, intrusive techniques that you see operating in the digital environment, that people being tracked online and followed over the internet uh, in order to build up profiles of their behavior. People aren't always comfortable with that. There's a whole host of other principles. You, you, data protection requires that processing of personal data must be kept to the minimum necessary to achieve a particular purpose, that data is not kept for longer than necessary. All of these principles, these constraints, will often lead businesses, if they can, to anonymize data rather than keep it as personal data because there can still be huge value in it from an analytical perspective um, for certain purposes uh, when it's converted into anonymized data. But clearly, you know, for certain, to realize certain value from personal data, it needs to remain as personal data. If you're looking at digital marketing, you absolutely uh, are relying on building up profiles of individuals that you can segment them and then you can target advertising them at them accordingly. So the tension there is, is exploiting these new technologies and new techniques. I say new, many of them have been around for a while, but exploiting these uh, techniques in a way that, that always is compliant. And for an incumbent business going digital, increasingly looking to use digital uh, methods to exploit data, the thing they need to do is ensure that they remain within their the risk appetite of that business while not being at a competitive disadvantage to perhaps the, the younger, more digitally enabled business that might be um, might have a, a greater risk appetite, might be more willing to experiment with and, and, and move into these new areas. Thanks so much to both of you. We've covered a huge amount of ground in this session. 